The island of Martha's Vineyard is scrambling to provide food and shelter for some 50 migrants who were abandoned on the island last night by plane. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis sent them there as a new tactic in the political fight over border security, and it's getting major pushback. It is an incredibly inhumane and depraved thing to do. This is All Things Considered. Lisa Mullen is also coming up. President Biden says days of negotiations to avert a national rail strike had yielded a deal. We'll speak with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And a controversial experiment in Canada aims to keep drug users alive by helping them get high more safely. That's when I got on safe supplies when I came out of the ICU and it, it basically I'm pretty sure it saved my life. Coming up, Canada's harm reduction approach to addiction, whether the U.S. might adopt the same thing. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden and members of his administration are applauding the tentative agreement reached between freight railroads and the unions representing thousands of workers. Speaking from the White House today, Biden called the deal a win for America and for both sides involved. With this agreement, railroad companies will be able to retain and recruit workers. They'll be able to continue to operate effectively as a vital piece of our economy. They're really the backbone of the economy. I have this visual image of rails being the backbone. I mean, literally, the backbone of the economy. The tentative deal was reached early this morning after a marathon bargaining session that was mediated by the Labor Department. The agreement averts a strike that could have exacerbated the nation's supply chain problems. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports the two sides had been deadlocked for years on a number of issues, including paid sick leave, long hours, and on-call policies. The big freight railroads averted a near total shutdown of the rail system, primarily by offering a small concession, a few days of unpaid sick leave. Railroads keep locomotive engineers and conductors on call much of the time. Railroad staffing is very tight, and train operators can be penalized for taking unplanned time off for doctor's visits or even medical emergencies. With sick leave and a few other concessions, unions representing rail workers think they have a proposal their membership can approve. The proposal would grant a 24 percent pay raise by 2024. Union members still need to ratify the agreement. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Federal scientists say the summer was one of the hottest on record in the United States. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports heat records were broken in Asia and Europe as well. Climate change is causing the planet to heat up rapidly. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, eight states in the northwest and northeast experienced their hottest August ever since record-keeping began 128 years ago. Globally, the Northern Hemisphere had its second hottest summer on record. Europe broke its previous record for the hottest summer ever, and parts of East Asia had their hottest August ever recorded. Looking ahead to the fall, federal forecasters predict basically the entire U.S. will see warmer than normal weather, and drought will persist from Texas across the plains and the west. In the Atlantic, hurricane season continues for another month and a half, and scientists warn that more storms are very likely. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Tropical storm Fiona is gaining strength in the Atlantic Ocean. The National Hurricane Center says the storm is located about 450 miles east of the Leeward Islands with sustained winds of up to 50 miles per hour. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Social service agencies across Massachusetts are on standby to help the nearly 50 migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard last night. And Governor Charlie Baker says the state is also taking steps to provide services to the migrants. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. In a written statement, the governor said the administration is looking to set up temporary shelter and humanitarian services at Joint Base Cape Cod. He also thanked everyone on the ground who quickly provided assistance to the migrants on the vineyard. He went on to say the Commonwealth has many resources for assisting individuals that arrive in Massachusetts with varying immigration statuses and needs. He said the state is working with all partners involved to make sure those resources are available to the migrants that arrived last night. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The agency Martha's Vineyard Community Services is providing essential care for the migrants. As WBR's Josie Guarino reports, the agency was one of the first stops migrants made after they arrived on the island. Right now, they are in a state of shock and are trying to figure out where they are and what is next for them. That's Martha's Vineyard Community Services spokesperson Rebecca Pierce. She says her agency is coordinating with the sheriff's department to help feed, house, clothe, and offer counseling to the roughly 50 migrant workers who showed up on the island Wednesday. Things usually wind down there this time of year, but Pierce says her nonprofit will rise to the new challenge. Community Services, as always, has provided support to our island community, and we consider these new additions, just that, new additions to our island community, and we're going to make them feel warm and welcome just as we would anyone else. Pierce says there's been an outpouring of support from the community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Smith College in Northampton has named its next leader. The Board of Trustees announced today that Sarah Willie LeBreton has been named Smith's 12th president. She currently serves as provost and dean of the faculty at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Willie LeBreton will take over for Kathleen McCartney at Smith College next July. In the forecast, pretty lovely out there once again today. Should have clear skies tonight, lows in the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunshine again with temperatures in the low to mid-70s. Saturday, more sunshine in the mid-70s. Then Sunday, mostly sunny. Could have some showers, though, with highs in the low 80s. 70 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. And Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. A massive rail strike that threatened major disruptions has been avoided for now. Rail carriers and unions representing thousands of workers have reached a tentative deal, which President Biden celebrated this morning. This agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean this sincerely, a win for America. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg helped negotiate the deal, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. How confident are you, first of all, that union members will ratify this deal? I believe this is a deal that was reached in good faith that the parties came to after uh, very intense conversations and uh, a lot of uh, clear thought into what they needed. So, uh, of course, now it has to go out for ratification, but everybody is invested in that process being successful. And assuming that it is, how soon should we expect to see the trains moving again? 
Well, uh, right away, but there are some impacts that came just even from the preparations for the possibility of a shutdown that started at the beginning of this week. So our Federal Rail Administration is going to continue coordinating with Amtrak and the rail carriers just to make sure that uh, those ripple effects are uh, smooth as they work their way through the system over the next two or three days. Now, workers made clear during these negotiations that they they don't just care about wages, that quality of life is also important. For instance, being able to take time off when they're sick and not face punishment for that. What kind of a message do you think this sends to other employers? Well, this is something that we see a lot in particular when it comes to essential transportation workers because of the nature of their work. Similarly with truck drivers, you know, some of the issues that have really impacted the availability of truck drivers are uh, not just things relating to their dollars and cents compensation, but uh, the ability to uh, have uh, places, safe places to park and rest in their case, uh, even something like access to bathrooms, these basic quality of life issues that stand alongside compensation as a very important matter. That's what you saw here, too, uh, clearly a a very important issue for the workers uh, in terms of how their sick time was addressed, uh, especially for workers who are on call for long periods of time. Uh, And because the nature of this transportation business often requires very unusual things that that most nine to five workers don't deal with, I think that will continue to be something that is expressed as a a real priority for workers in negotiations and the, the public dialogue about what it means to treat essential workers as essential. What do you think it does mean? Well, what it means is that uh, it's important to have competitive pay and uh, a high quality of life. For the unions, it means, uh, of course, uh, uh, pay increases and improvements in quality of life. For the railroads, it means uh, a way to attract and retain uh, great workers who are the key to uh, uh, to making rail operations work. And for the country, it means avoiding the disruptions that uh, could have uh, accompanied any kind of shutdown or uh, uh, or slow down. Now, a rail strike does appear to be averted for the moment, but West Coast dock workers are still in negotiations about their new contract. That, of course, is another key piece of the supply chain. How hopeful are you, Secretary, that those issues can also be resolved? Uh, very hopeful, but also uh, continuing to, to monitor closely. Uh, you know, our, our supply chains are only as strong uh, as our uh, most congested link, and uh, we've seen that. Uh, throughout the pandemic period and and, and recovery from the worst days of it, uh, whether it's ships, trucks, warehouses, or trains. uh, All of these things need to be working well in order for our economy to thrive. Yeah, maybe on that note, President Biden said in response to the news of this tentative deal that he's hopeful that similar agreements can be struck in other fields as well. What else might be in the works? Well, when you look at uh, the, the things that are important to transportation workers, it does, of course, vary by sector, but compensation will always be important quality of life matters. And that means different things to a a rail worker than it might mean uh, to a flight attendant or to a longshore worker. But what it all adds up to is making sure that people can uh, build a a career, support their families, be be satisfied with their career choices. Uh, And all of that adds up into a a functioning supply chain who, you know, no matter how much infrastructure we build, and even today, uh, we're announcing 26 places where we're deploying one and a half billion dollars. It's just a piece of the puzzle in helping build our physical infrastructure supporting supply chains. But for all of that, at the end of the day, the most important element of our supply chain is people. My last question for you, Secretary Buttigieg, is just does this deal go far enough? I mean, if it's successful, it will make conditions better for for these workers in some ways. But as you've alluded to, we've seen other labor shortages in other pieces 
of the supply chain. Uh, what is the administration doing to push the railroads and other critical industries to just do what needs to be done to attract and retain these workers and avoid these kinds of disruptions in the future? This is exactly what the uh, what falls to the parties to come to agreement on, a, a solution that makes sense for the workers and for the railroads. Uh, again, every industry, every sector is a little bit different, but what they all have in common is it's people make it all possible. And we need to do right by the people who we count on for transportation and, and for goods movement, whether we realize it or not. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good being with you. The White House is spotlighting the rise in hate-fueled violence at a day-long gathering today. The United We Stand Summit aims to kickstart efforts at the local and federal levels to help communities prevent, respond to, and recover from these kinds of attacks. NPR's Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism, has been monitoring the summit. Hey, Odette. Hey, Juana. So tell us a little more about this summit. What's been happening there and what has it been like? It's been a lot of testimonials. Uh, We heard from victims of hate crimes or their family members, a former neo-Nazi skinhead, uh, federal agency heads and extremism experts, to name a few. Um, Vice President Kamala Harris made remarks near the top with President Biden closing it out. Harris set the tone um, saying that the surge we're seeing in hate crimes and domestic terrorism has brought this country to an inflection point in its democracy. You know, Juana, this has been an interesting thing to watch today. Um, The Biden administration is being careful to frame the issue as one that should unite all democracy-loving Americans, regardless of background or politics. But of course, these efforts by the White House have been poorly received by some on the right, particularly Republicans in Congress who say the administration is demonizing conservatives. And Odette, as you've been listening, have you heard anything that suggests a new way of perhaps thinking about domestic terrorism? Yes, a couple of things. Uh, So for a long time, Juana, the U.S. approach to domestic terrorism was framed solely as a national security issue. Uh, It was a law enforcement matter with a focus on foreign terrorists or attacks that the Department of Homeland Security seemed to think would come from within Americans' Muslim community. And that, of course, led to very problematic civil rights issues. Today, uh, for the first time, we saw an administration preparing to take a much wider view. Uh, So instead of just talking about victims of mass violence or domestic terrorism, we also heard from people who were individually targeted in local hate crimes. Bill Braniff of the University of Maryland told participants why that's important. But if policymakers focus only on one, only on the 70 or so terrorist attacks that occur in a given year and not the 7,000 plus hate crimes, they'll make national security and public safety decisions based on less than 1% of the ideologically motivated crime that occurs in this country. This fails the victims of hate crime in their communities. It minimizes the national security implications of hate. If we're honest, it's not just policymakers. There is roughly one print news story for every 10 hate crimes reported to the FBI. We barely acknowledge them in our national discourse. And Juana, we also heard an interest in things like public civic education and media literacy to help Americans know when they're being targeted by extremist propaganda or misinformation that can lead to violence. And Odette, so far, have there been any kind of concrete promises coming out of this event? Yeah, so for that digital literacy piece, there will be close to $70 million to help states develop programs. The Department of Education is allocating a billion dollars over 10 years to states to help support students who face hate. 
And the Department of Homeland Security is awarding $20 million for prevention efforts. And some of that will go to historically black colleges and universities, which you may know have been recently targeted by bomb threats. But at the end of the day, the idea is that this summit is a kickoff to work that will largely be done at the community level. That's NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef. Thank you. Thank you. Ukrainian ballet dancer Oleksandr Shapoval is being remembered as a courageous romantic. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Shapoval volunteered to fight. On Monday, he was killed on the battlefield, according to the National Opera of Ukraine, where he was a principal dancer. He was 48 years old. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. Prima ballerina Christina Shishper met Alexander Shapoval 22 years ago. Speaking from Kyiv, she says their first ballet together was dancing the leads in Swan Lake. It took my heart and took my breath when I danced with him this Swan Lake first time. Shishper and Shapoval went on to dance in many different ballets together. She remembers his versatility. She says he could be tender when the part called for it or fierce. Soon after Russia invaded the country, Shapoval volunteered to fight. Shishper says she wasn't at all surprised by his decision. It was to be expected, and everyone understood that he would give his duty for our country, for our people, for our children. He was always standing on the side of justice. Eventually, Shapoval's unit was sent to a region with heavy fighting, and he was killed. The National Opera of Ukraine issued a statement that said his death was received with indescribable sadness. He was a reliable partner, a reliable friend, sincere human being, and I must say that he was the soul of the team. The soul of the team. Alexander Shapoval is survived by his wife and a 21-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 98.9 WBUR. Coming up, doctors, pharmacists, and frontline health workers have created a safety net for active drug users in Ottawa that aims to slow the rate of fatal overdoses by helping people get high more safely. Could the same happen in the U.S.? That story is just ahead. Losses across the board on Wall Street. The Dow lost about a half percent, 173 points, to close at 30,962. S&P fell more than one and a tenth percent to close at 3,901. The Nasdaq gave up almost one and a half percent to close at 11,552. Details on this day in business coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. 
Drought conditions in the state have improved significantly over the past month. According to the state's latest drought monitor, just under 9% of Massachusetts remains in extreme drought right now. That's down from more than 39% in the state four weeks ago. The entire state is still experiencing some level of drought. Pretty dry weather in our immediate future. Clear skies tonight should be down in the low 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and dry. Highs in the low to mid-70s. More sunshine ahead over the weekend. Should have temperatures in the mid-70s. 70s on Saturday, the lower 80s on Sunday. 70 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Juana Summers. Record numbers of people in the U.S. are dying from drug overdoses, more than 100,000 deaths a year. And now public health experts here are watching a controversial experiment underway in Canada. It aims to keep drug users alive, not by curing their addiction, but by helping them get high more safely. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Anne-Marie Hopkins takes me down a street in Ottawa, Canada's capital, where dozens of people lie on the sidewalk. Um, we do have quite a lot of overdoses out here. Hi, honey, how are you? Hi, Marie. Hopkins runs a program here for people with addiction. These days, that means scrambling all the time just to keep patients alive. Um, got porta potties that we have to check for bodies. Addiction has changed. It used to be a chronic illness, something most people struggled with before eventually recovering. Now, street drugs in the U.S. and here in Canada are far more deadly, laced with powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl and other toxic chemicals. So Hopkins says her philosophy of addiction care also had to change. She sums it up in a single sentence. There is no recovery if you're dead. So here in Ottawa and other cities across Canada, addiction workers are partnering with doctors, nurses, and pharmacists to create addiction programs to help people even when they're not yet willing to give up the drugs that get them high. Pardon me. Oh, okay. Hey there. Oh. Hopkins takes me inside her clinic, where half a dozen people are sitting in little booths. They look sort of like the study desk you'd see in a library. They're shooting up, injecting heroin and methamphetamines purchased from street dealers. Hopkins says these people can get in trouble fast, so her team watches every user on a closed-circuit TV screen. He's taking a look right now, he's watching somebody inject. If he were to see, like say for example, this gentleman not doing well, he would yell out to the staff on the floor, hey, go check eight, make sure they're okay. It's troubling to watch. Overdoses happen here all the time, just like they do out on the street. But in this clinic and similar clinics across Canada, nurses stand by ready to help. 
During my visit, a woman slumps forward in her chair. The individual in that booth is under like a very mild overdose. Um, we're just gonna pop her on just a little bit of oxygen, probably a very low level, just to make sure that she doesn't dip down further. Some forms of harm reduction have been around for years in the U.S. and Canada. More communities are distributing naloxone. It's a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. They're handing out clean needles to help people with addiction avoid diseases like HIV and hepatitis. The harm reduction experiment here in Ottawa is more radical, more controversial. In most of the U.S., this kind of care would be illegal. But the people who come here to use drugs say it's a lifeline. The staff here are very special people to, to, to come and be here with us, for us. Shelly, who doesn't want to share her last name, just finished injecting opioids in one of the booths. She says using drugs outside on the streets is frightening. She tells me about a recent overdose that happened in a place with no medical care, no safety net. I was thrown in the bathtub of cold water, and when I woke, came to, uh, my friends were in smoking crack. <laughs> I could have probably just died in that bathtub. I see it every day. I see overdoses, and I have many, many friends have lost their lives. I want to pause here and acknowledge this may sound a little crazy. If people experience this much danger using drugs, why don't they just stop? Why not get the kind of addiction treatment aimed at full recovery? But studies show tens of millions of people in the U.S. and Canada who use illegal drugs either can't quit or aren't yet willing to try. So the question is, how can the healthcare system help people who are still using these high-risk drugs? Hi, I'm Max. I meet Max at another Ottawa clinic a half-hour drive away. He's sitting with a fantasy novel, waiting for a session with one of his caseworkers. I used to be a complete mess before I got on this program. He's 26 years old and tells me he's used methamphetamines since he was 12. I used to be a very heavy meth user. I, I used to inject a gram of meth in a shot every day, three times a day. So Max now comes to the pharmacy in this clinic every week for another form of experimental harm reduction not available in the U.S. It's called Safer Supply. With a doctor's prescription, he gets enough Ritalin that he can inject it to get the high he craves without buying high-risk meth on the street. He joined the program after an overdose nearly killed him. I spent three months in the ICU, and that's when I got on Safe Supplies when I came out of the ICU, and it, it basically, I'm pretty sure it saved my life. So that's the big win. Max is still alive. He says he's also using smaller doses of drugs, trying to taper his addiction. And while he's here, he gets other kinds of medical care, and he's working with a social worker to find permanent housing. Now, here's why addiction experts in the U.S. are paying attention to what's happening in Canada. The U.S. is seeing an even bigger surge of drug overdoses, and public health officials are embracing this idea that helping people with addiction survive has to be a first step. Dr. Brian Hurley is with ASAM, the top organization in the U.S. pushing for better addiction care. There is a tremendous number of Americans at risk for overdose that are not going to go into treatment, or at least they're not going to go into treatment right now. And if we say, well, wait until they're ready, they might be dead. ASAM hasn't taken a position on doctors prescribing drugs to people who use the medications to get high. Hurley says they need more data first, more research. But ASAM supports the idea of supervised drug use clinics, like the ones in Canada, opening across the U.S. I think that we should see more communities start and test safer consumption sites 
see what works and what doesn't, and make modifications in order to bring these to scale. It's common for Americans to romanticize healthcare in Canada, so a note of caution is important here. People working in Ottawa's harm reduction network don't claim their programs offer anything like a quick, easy solution. Yes, services and healthcare for people using drugs have gotten better, but street drugs also keep getting more powerful, more toxic. Anne-Marie Hopkins says even with their best efforts, a lot of people are still dying. It's completely exhausting for the team. We have a very high rate of burnout. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely very emotionally taxing on the staff. But Hopkins is convinced that with more clinics like hers and better public health care for people still actively using drugs, a lot more lives could be saved, both in Canada and in the U.S. And NPR's Brian Mann is here with me now. And Brian, a lot of these approaches that you've been reporting on, well, they're quite controversial. Could we see them perhaps tried here in the United States? You know, Juana, a couple of years ago, I would have said no. You know, there are still big ethical debates, even within the addiction and healthcare communities, over some of these approaches. But these drug deaths just keep rising astronomically. The medical journal, The Lancet, has predicted that another 1.2 million Americans will die from overdoses by the end of this decade. So we're seeing more public health responses that once seemed impossible. They're now on the table. And at one of the clinics you visited, there were people who were injecting street drugs under medical supervision. Is there anything like that now here in the U.S.? Yeah, we've seen two supervised injection clinics open in New York City last year. Uh, people in other states are considering similar pilot programs. A big question now is what position the Justice Department will take on this kind of harm reduction. Right now, what's happening in Canada would be illegal under U.S. law, but the DOJ is doing a policy review right now. If they allow safe injection sites to open, that would be a game changer. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 98.9 WBUR. Beautiful today, clear tonight, and sunny again tomorrow. Tonight's lows about 51, tomorrow's highs about 73 degrees. Sunny and mainly dry over the weekend. 71 degrees now in the Boston area at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. LabShares Newton, offering state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. And JBS Home Inspections, with condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A nationwide rail strike has been averted after the Biden administration brokered a tentative deal between railroad companies and unions representing over 100,000 freight rail workers. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says negotiations went on for 20 hours straight 
And before the deal was announced, President Biden urged both groups to be flexible. He pushed them once again to recognize the harm that would hit families, farmers, businesses, and entire uh, communities if there was a shutdown. He asked them to be creative, to be flexible, uh, meet the other half, uh, the others halfway as well. And he emphasized how significant the economic impacts uh, could be. Under the tentative agreement, unionized freight rail workers will get significant pay raises over the next five years, plus a cash bonus. But pay wasn't the biggest sticking point. Engineers and conductors also wanted to address long hours and being away from home for days at a time. The member states of the world's atomic watchdog agency have overwhelmingly approved a resolution condemning Russia's occupation of Ukraine's nuclear power plant. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more. The resolution deplores Russia's use of military force to take and occupy the nuclear plant, which is Europe's largest. It also calls on the Russian Federation to cease military actions at the plant. The Zaporizhia plant has been repeatedly struck by shelling and power outages in the past month. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is pushing for a nuclear safety zone around the plant. 26 members of the 35-member board voted to approve this latest resolution. Seven abstained and only Russia and China voted against it. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. After a couple of up days on Wall Street, stocks finished lower today. The Dow was down 173 points, about half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he is responsible for sending two planes full of migrants from Venezuela and Colombia to Martha's Vineyard last night. He says Florida is not the place for them. We are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Leaders on the island of the vineyard are scrambling to provide resources for the roughly 50 new arrivals. Lisa Belcastro is with the Martha's Vineyard Homeless Shelter. Some of them have been through really horrific things, so they need a break. Martha's Vineyard officials say they were given no advance notice the migrants were being brought to the island and left there. Massachusetts is moving forward with its plan to return billions of dollars to state taxpayers. The state auditor says today the state's required to return nearly $3 billion to taxpayers. That's thanks to an obscure 36-year-old law that caps how much revenue the state can collect. Details of how the surplus money will be distributed are still being worked out. And the state of commuting in Massachusetts is inspiring little optimism, a new poll from Suffolk University finds. About 70 percent of respondents say traffic issues have not improved over the past four years. Nearly half of those polled say traffic has gotten worse. The poll finds about 40 percent of Massachusetts residents consider the MBTA to be either worse than average public transit system or one of the worst in the country. Less than 3 percent consider the T to be one of the country's best transit systems. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. snhu.edu. And Huntington Theater presenting Sing Street, a new musical based on the hit indie film. Huntington Calderwood BCA now through October 9th. HuntingtonTheater.org. Red Sox get the night off tonight. Their homestand continues tomorrow night in the forecast. Sunshine through the evening hours, cool and dry overnight tonight. Clear skies tonight, down around 50 degrees. And then for Saturday, should be sunny once again. Temperatures in the 70s, the mid-80s on Sunday. This is WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Two plane loads of migrants arrived on Martha's Vineyard yesterday afternoon without warning. This marks a new escalation in the political fight over border security. The migrants were flown from Texas on planes chartered by the state of Florida. And just this morning, two busloads of migrants were dropped off outside the official residence of the vice president in Washington. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration and joins us now. Hi, Joel. Hi, Sarah. So let's start with Martha's Vineyard. Can you explain what happened with these flights? Yeah, we're still putting together the details, but about 50 migrants were on two planes that landed on Martha's Vineyard yesterday afternoon, mostly Venezuelans. Uh, The planes were funded by the state of Florida, but they actually originated in South Texas. Three of those migrants tell NPR they had been staying at a migrant shelter in San Antonio, They say they were lured onto the flights with the false promise of expedited work permits and that they were misled about exactly where it was they were going. We know that the flights also stopped in Florida and South Carolina on their way to Martha's Vineyard. And so why is Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, doing this? Why is he flying migrants from Texas to Massachusetts? This is like political reality TV. Governor DeSantis accuses progressive-run cities and states of incentivizing illegal immigration by not fully enforcing immigration laws, while at the same time not actually dealing with the consequences of increased migration at the southern border. Here's DeSantis at a press conference earlier today. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk and they're so upset that this is happening. And it just shows you, you know, their virtue signaling is a fraud, okay? DeSantis has talked publicly before about sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard because it has a reputation as a summer resort for wealthy and powerful liberals. Even DeSantis has said, though, that that was partly tongue-in-cheek, but now he has actually followed through. Yeah, so Joel, how are the residents of Martha's Vineyard responding? Um, Well, so they're trying their best to make these migrants feel welcome. The migrants are staying for now at a church shelter on the island. Um, state and local officials say they're, they're trying their best to help them. By the way, that includes the office of Governor Charlie Baker, who is a Republican like DeSantis. And there's been some real outrage from Democrats and immigrant advocates um, who say that these migrants are being used for political gain. Here's Lisa Belcastro, uh, the director of the homeless shelter on Martha's Vineyard. We'll do everything we can, and you can believe this island community will do everything they can. But they need more. These people are pawns. And we have to stop the chess game right now because they're human beings and they don't deserve to be treated as they're being treated. And shame on everyone involved. Some prominent Democrats are calling on the Department of Justice to investigate whether any laws were broken here, including Congressman Joaquin Castro, who represents San Antonio in the House, also California Governor Gavin Newsom. And this isn't a new tactic exactly for Republican governors. Joel, why do you think we are seeing this escalation now? 
Yeah, that's right. For months, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has ordered the state to pay for charter buses in order to move migrants from the border to cities in the north, including Washington, D.C., New York, and now Chicago. Uh, and just this morning, two of those buses dropped off about 100 migrants near the official residence of the vice president in D.C. Um, as for timing, I would point out that both governors Abbott and DeSantis are both running for re-election, and these tactics get a lot of attention, particularly on Fox News and right-wing media. But these governors say they're calling attention to a real border security issue. And it's true, the U.S. Border Patrol has made a record number of apprehensions at the southern border this year. That's NPR's Joel Rose. Thanks so much. You're welcome. I'm Lisa Mullins. The practice of some Republican governors sending migrants to Massachusetts and other liberal-leaning states appears to have an impact on the medical system. Hospital officials and social service leaders say many of the migrant families are showing up in emergency rooms around the Boston area in need of urgent care and shelter. WBR's Gabriella Emanuel has been looking into the situation and joins me now. So as we just heard, Gabriella, about 50 migrants arrived on Martha's Vineyard yesterday to the surprise of local officials. But the increase that you're reporting on has been going on for quite a while. Tell us about it. Yes, this is distinct from that situation to a degree. Over the past several months, particularly in July and August, there was a significant increase in people arriving from South American countries and Haiti. While this has been confirmed by the state, it's been very hard to pin down the exact numbers. However, the Immigrant Family Services Institute, which is a social services agency headquartered in Mattapan, said that between May and July, it alone welcomed 1,800 people. And while the August numbers are still preliminary, the organization estimates it received around 600 more people that much, which is a six-fold increase from normal. And most of these people, they say, are pregnant women and families with young children. Here's the executive director, Gerald Gabo, who has been working in this field for 25 years. Yesterday, for example, at uh, 7 p.m., we have six families coming directly from the Logan Airport to our office. We were not ready. We could not do anything. It is really worse than anything that we have ever seen. She said the majority of the people her organizations seeing are fleeing violence in Haiti. As they arrive, some are even having to sleep outside as they scramble to find housing and really basic needs like mattresses, diapers, towels, and also food. So we don't have exact numbers, but how are these people getting here? What's their path? Yes, that is an open question, too. The mayor's office for immigrant advancement in Boston says it's just trying to figure that out, including how recently the families arrived. I also spoke to several nonprofit service agencies, and they said they're coming very recently. They're very new arrivals, and at least some families are coming from New York. Now, as we heard, the governors of Texas and Arizona have been sending many thousands of migrants to New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. This is part of a contentious political strategy to highlight the record number of immigrants arriving at the southern border and then force so-called sanctuary cities to support them. The people who arrived by plane in Martha's Vineyard this week are part of that same political drama. In that case, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he chartered the planes to fly the migrants from Texas to the vineyard. But even before they landed, it seems families were dropped off in New York and then have been finding their own way 
up to Boston. Nora Elise de Jesus works at La Collaborativa in Chelsea, which has been helping some of these immigrants who are from countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras, and Peru. She told me about one family that came on a chartered bus from Texas to New York. They knew nobody in New York. Um, it was really hard for them to find any organization in New York that can support them. Um, and so in New York, they heard of La Colaborativa and then they came, they came to Chelsea. She says these families say they saw a flyer advertising La Colaborativa, but the origins of that flyer are unknown. Um, she says one reason they seem to be gravitating here is because of the medical insurance that the state offers. So can you tell us about the medical needs of these individuals? Yes. So one of the first ways this came to the attention of local officials is because doctors and social workers in emergency rooms and clinics started comparing notes, noticing a trend, and then flagging it. Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program told me that in pre-pandemic times, they usually saw one, maybe two new homeless families a week. But lately, their lobby can have four or five new migrant families in there all at one time, and all with serious medical needs. Some are pregnant women who have severe abdominal cramping. Others are women who are seven or eight months pregnant and have yet to see a doctor. Georgia Thomas Diaz helps head their behavioral health team there. And she told me that about one woman she saw a couple weeks ago. So she didn't have her uh, medications with her because she's a diabetic. She didn't have her medication. She didn't take her medication for 10 days. Then when I saw her, she looked very pale and like very lethargic. They ended up rushing her to the emergency room because her sugar was so high. So Gabriella, when people like that get to the emergency room, how do the ERs deal with it? Yeah, I reached out to several of them to find out. And the hospital said they are committed to providing care for this population. But one of the big challenges has been when these families are medically cleared, where do they go next? Boston Medical Center told me that the recent uptick has really strained the agencies it works with to help these families. Okay. Thank you for telling us about it. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reporting on an increase in asylum seekers arriving in Massachusetts in the past few months and the pressure they're putting on medical and support systems. Thank you, Gabriela. Thank you. Since its founding, the United States has been a majority Christian nation. And while it's still the dominant religion, the country's Christian majority has been shrinking for decades. Now, a new study from Pew Research Center shows that as of 2020, the number of Americans who identify as Christian is about 64 percent. Fifty years ago, that number was 90 percent. And if that trend continues, Pew predicts that Christians could become a minority in just a few decades. Stephanie Kramer led the study for Pew Research Center. She's a senior researcher specializing in religion, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. First off, what's happening here? Is this more about American Christians switching to another religious identity, or are they becoming non-religious altogether? They're becoming unaffiliated. Um, so they are identifying as either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, but they're not all non-believers. Most of them do identify as nothing in particular, and most do believe in some kind of higher power or spiritual force. That's where the majority of the movement is going. We don't see a lot of people leaving Christianity for a non-Christian religion. Are you noticing any trends um, in terms of age or demographics? Who's leaving Christianity? 
people who are raised Christian and later disaffiliate are a little more likely to be men than women. Um, younger people are more likely to have disaffiliated than older people. People who live in the western region of the U.S. are more likely to have disaffiliated than people who live in the south. I want to play some tape from a woman we talked to. Her name is Eliza Campbell, and she left the Latter-day Saints Church, which is included in this survey among broader Christianity. Here's what Eliza Campbell had to say about why she left her church. And for me, especially when I started to come out as queer, it became impossible for me to reconcile this church that basically was admitting that it wanted me and other queer children dead. It just, I sort of realized that I had to you know, choose myself ultimately and choose my well-being. Is this common, people leaving Christianity because they disagree with specific teachings? Yes. Pew has asked people in an open-ended way why they left their religion, and it is common for people to say that they just don't really believe the things that the religion teaches. Your study also found that it's likely that by 2070, Americans who don't belong to any religion will be the majority. Can you tell us more about those findings and the different scenarios that might lead to that outcome? Sure. If recent trends in switching hold, we project that Christians could make up between 35 and 46 percent of the U.S. population in 2070. Even if all religious switching had permanently ended in 2020, Christians would still be projected to decline by about 10 percentage points Um, Under these scenarios, the unaffiliated would grow to make up between 34 and 52 percent of the population in 2070. Are other religions also losing members? Other religions are projected to grow, mostly due to migration under all of our scenarios. Why is it important to measure this? And what do you see as the significance of this data? The U.S. used to be such a heavily Christian country, you know, before about the mid-90s, you could almost take it for granted that anyone you met on the street was Christian. I think a lot of people are wondering, where is Christianity headed and where are the unaffiliated headed? And this study speaks to that when it comes to current trends. If recent trends continued, what would the future religious landscape look like? Stephanie Kramer is a senior researcher specializing in religion at the Pew Center. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a waning moon tonight, clear skies to take a look, cooling down again to about 50 degrees. The work week should end with sunshine, breezy, coolish again tomorrow in the mid-70s, a nice day. The weekend, though, is looking really nice, at least for Saturday, sunny again in the low 70s, followed by sunshine on Sunday. There is, though, the off chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon on Sunday, windy and warmer up around 85 degrees, 70 degrees now at 450. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Juana Summers. Another tennis legend is retiring. Switzerland's Roger Federer said today on social media that he is ending his competitive career after more than 1,500 matches over 24 years. Federer won 20 Grand Slam titles, Grand Slam singles titles, that is. His announcement follows Serena Williams' recent decision to evolve away from tennis. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is here now. Hey, Tom. Hi, Juana. All right. So this news, like a lot of news, came with a video on Twitter. What did Federer say? That he is 41 and done. Uh, (laughs) He's had three straight years of dealing with injuries and surgeries, mainly a bulky knee. And it's proving to be too much. Here's some of what he said. I've worked hard to return to full competitive form, but I also know my body's capacities and limits and its message to me lately has been clear. Now, Federer says he will play one more event next week's Laver Cup in London. It's a team event matching top European players against the rest of the world. He loves that event, and it will be his swan song. Okay, it's hard not to think about the timing here. This is right after the U.S. Open, which was this huge major farewell to Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. Any connection here? Well, none that Federer mentioned, but surely, you know, he paid attention to what happened in New York, including the men's competition that was amazingly competitive, featured a bunch of hard-hitting, fast, and athletic players in their early 20s. The champion, Carlos Alcaraz, was 19. So I don't think it's too far a stretch to think Federer saw all that and factored it into his decision. You know, I'm twice as old as some of these guys. My body's not cooperating. Time to go. Okay. So as we remember his career, Tom, what What image comes to mind when you think of Roger Federer? Flowing, elegant, uh, a player who always seemed in position and never looked awkward. He had a grace and sportsmanship that seemed to fit Wimbledon best with its manners and history. He won a record eight singles titles there. Interestingly, that sportsmanship as an adult player is quite the opposite of him as a kid. He was often a terror on the court, throwing his rackets, swearing. He says it took him till about the age of 19 to get that under control and to stop embarrassing his parents who threatened not to come watch him if he kept up the bad behavior. So as he ends his career, he will not be the men's player with the most Grand Slam singles titles. He's currently third on that all-time list. But what do you think his legacy will be? As one of the big three in men's tennis, along with Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, a trio that has dominated for the past 20 years, also as a man who became very rich with prize money and especially endorsements and business sponsorships that he dealt with in a pretty engaging way. The countless meet and greet and corporate sessions that many athletes of his stature loathe, he apparently didn't. Um, A New York Times article last year about his billion dollar brand described some revealing moments, including one When he visited Nike headquarters in Oregon, he was on his way to another meeting when he stopped his host and said he had to go back to the previous meeting because he forgot to thank the people who helped design his shoes. Uh, A small example of a mega athlete who, according to many, has been a pretty real guy. And one quick Mm -hmm. other example, he shared his tennis journey closely with his family, traveling with his wife and four kids, sometimes all bunking in the same hotel room. Granted, a luxury hotel room for sure, but still a nice image. That is NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Thank you. You're welcome. Maine is one of the whitest states in the nation, and the fishermen in its famed lobster industry reflect that demographic reality. But this summer, a small group of black men, some of them recent arrivals from Africa, are learning to lobster, as Fred Bever reports. 
At 15, Cristiano Silva thought he might spend the summer working at a McDonald's near his home on the outskirts of Portland, Maine, and help with household expenses. Instead, he found himself on a lobster boat called the Sea Smoke out here among Casco Bay's rocky islands. Nose scrunched, he places a fist-sized mesh bag full of smelly herring inside a lobster trap. I like it, I like it. The only thing I can't stand is the smell of the fish. That's literally it. I'm not gonna lie, that, that's what kind of kicked my butt right now. I, I just can't handle it. Chris was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he was still a toddler when his mother emigrated here a decade ago. Now he and several other black teens are learning how to lobster in a new program called Float All Boats. One thing that's a little tricky is getting what's called the buoy out of the water, because sometimes, right, it's weird angles and like you kind of miss it. Belching diesel fumes, the boat makes its way from buoy to buoy. Captain Jeff Holden, a volunteer with the program, teaches the use of an electric pulley that helps to bring the attached lobster traps up from the sea floor. You don't get your fingers caught between here and the hauler because it will pull your hand right into the hauler. You actually cut a finger off if you're not careful. Okay, let it go. Holden is a longtime fisherman and lobster dealer who, with his son Luke and partner Ben Conniff, founded the Luke's Lobster Company in 2009. Conniff says that Maine's seafood packing plants are some of the most diverse places in the state, with immigrant workers from Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Africa. But when you think about that most prized job in the industry, getting to go out and, and catch and sell those lobsters yourself, you don't see any diversity. You see a sea of white. And the waiting list for a lobster license is years long, which is why Portland school teacher Halima Noor pushed Chris and other students to say yes when Luke's offered boat time, gear, and expertise, the tools needed for a state apprenticeship program that allows teens to bypass that waiting list. I had never heard of a lobster man that was a person of color. Noor, who was born in Somalia, says that the doors of opportunity don't always swing wide for young black people in Maine, although she's not expecting the lobstering program to change the world. Not them saying, like, wow, we just ended racism right now, guys. <laughs> but if they're just like, we got to do something that no other kid of color in Maine got to do, and this was great, and I'd be like, thank you. That was, that's all I want for you to get. The oldest of the apprentice lobstermen, 17-year-old Joshua Lamour, is a promising football player who's excited about college recruiters who've been turning up lately. But he says that the lobstering experience is also opening new career horizons. And also just being alone out on the ocean sometimes, just doing your job and getting work done. You're really focused on nothing else. You can leave everything else behind. It's good. It's very therapeutic, I think. Lamour and Chris Silva both emphasize that a key attractant is getting paid for their share of the catch. Back at sea, though, Silva notes the price lobstermen get for their catch can seesaw pretty wildly. Now it's like five per pound, so it's like a little disappointing. So it really depends on how lucky you get. So last time I was pretty lucky. I got some good ones. I make some good money. Yeah. And on this particular day, there is still some fishing luck in the offing. Chris and Josh say they will encourage siblings and schoolmates to join the program next summer. They plan to attend again too, and they are even talking about getting a small boat 
in going into business together. Three to a trap. For NPR News, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Clavio, seeking to help e-commerce brands build customer relationships and drive revenue through email and SMS. Learn more at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Last night, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis chartered two planes and sent about 50 South American migrants to Martha's Vineyard. They were left there, and now Vineyard residents are trying to provide food, shelter, and medical health for them. One official says they're being used as political pawns. Our report is coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, freight rail carriers and the unions that represent rail workers have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract. The deal includes wages increases and medical exemptions for attendance policies. And we remember Fred Franzia, the man behind the famous Charles Shaw wine known as Two Buck Chuck. Two Buck Chuck was a real phenomenon because it was relatively good wine that was sold in a respectable bottle. We'll pour one for the titan of bargain wine. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden was joined by railroad companies, union leaders, and members of his administration at the White House today to celebrate a tentative agreement that averts a massive freight rail strike. NPR's Amanda Bastille reports the two sides negotiated down to the final day, announcing a deal just hours before workers were set to walk out. The president took to the Rose Garden this morning to tout a union contract agreement reached at approximately 2 a.m. today. The deal includes a 24% increase in pay over a five-year period, capped costs on health care, and the ability to take time off for medical reasons without facing discipline. He promoted the deal as a win for his administration, thanking cabinet members and officials involved in negotiations. This agreement is validation, validation of what I've always believed. Unions and management can work together can work together for the benefit of everyone. The unions still have to vote on a new contract, but the so-called cooling-off period that delays a strike deadline is extended for now. Jimena Bustillo, 
NPR News, the White House. The White House is accusing Republican governors of pulling stunts to make a point about the administration's immigration policies. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports scores of migrants were loaded onto planes and buses this week and dropped off in cities and communities that are heavily Democratic. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis chartered two planes to transport a group of migrants to Martha's Vineyard on Wednesday without warning. Many of them said they were misled about where they were going. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called the move a premeditated political stunt. Republican governors using migrants as political pawns is, uh, is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. The governor of Texas says his state sent two buses of migrants to Vice President Kamala Harris's official residence in Washington, D.C. Many of them were left standing on the sidewalk carrying their belongings in trash bags. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The House has passed a bill aimed at preventing political interference in the next census. NPR's Hansi Luang reports the measure is facing a closing window for passage in the Senate. The House bill was prompted by years of interference with the 2020 census under former President Donald Trump's administration. Under the Ensuring a Fair and Accurate Census Act, the president would be allowed to remove the Census Bureau director only for, quote, inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. And the Government Accountability Office would have to check that all census questions have been studied and tested. The White House has signaled President Biden supports the bill, but so far no one has stepped up to help champion the legislation with a companion bill in the Senate. The bill is now headed to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. Stocks resumed their downward slide. The Dow dropped 173 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials on Martha's Vineyard say a group of nearly 50 migrants who arrived there unexpectedly are being given food and a place to sleep. From what I've heard is that folks were relaxing last night comfortably, um, were a bit upbeat. I, I think they were actually quite overwhelmed by, by the welcoming response you know, on the island. But it's, it's really clear that you know, these mi- migrant families uh, did not know they were traveling to Martha's Vineyard that's State Senator Julian Sear, who represents the Cape and Islands. He says the migrants arrived there yesterday and are settling in despite the confusion. It's unclear where exactly they threw in from, but they are originally from Venezuela and Colombia. Florida's governor claims he sent the group there as part of a policy of sending undocumented immigrants to more liberal states such as Massachusetts away from the border. Even before the migrants were dropped off yesterday, a nonprofit group in Chelsea says it was helping South American migrants who crossed the border earlier this year. WBR's Amanda Beeland has more on how the organization La Collaborativa says it will support any future migrants coming to the city. La Collaborativa Executive Director Gladys Vega says supporting migrants takes a community and she and her organization are ready to take the lead. We'll welcome them. We've been here before. We have the experience. We have the networks. We have the resources. And and the most important thing, we have worked with people that have that resiliency. We have worked with people that have been broken. This means everything from coats to food to rental assistance to mental health care. Vega says her organization has seen South American families arriving at Logan Airport over the last few months after crossing the southern U.S. border. La Collaborativa was made aware of them by members of the Chelsea community who work at the airport. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. 
A Massachusetts woman is under arrest in connection with a hoax bomb threat at Boston Children's Hospital. U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins has charged Catherine Levy of Westfield with making the threat. On August 30th, Levy allegedly told a phone operator, quote, there's a bomb on the way to the hospital. You better evacuate everybody, you sickos. At that time, Boston Children's was in the midst of a harassment campaign from people who object to the services the hospital offers to transgender people. In the forecast, 70 degrees now, beautiful today, clear tonight, sunny again tomorrow, tonight's lows about 51, tomorrow inching up to about 73, sunny and mainly dry for the start of the weekend anyway, in the 70s on Saturday, inching to the mid-80s on Sunday, sunshine, but we could have some afternoon showers. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies, dataiku.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Thick layers of smoke are blanketing the American West right now because of wildfires. More than 80 million people on the East Coast are under flash flood warnings. And just about a year ago, Hurricane Ida devastated much of the Louisiana coast. Virtually no part of the country seems immune to the effects of climate change. And the people who face the devastation, they live with it for years after disaster strikes. People like Benny and Tammy Alexi. Tammy, his wife, and their family lost almost everything to Hurricane Ida, including their home in a part of the bayou called Barataria, which was still flooded when we visited a month after Ida hit last year. What made New Orleans is the seafood that's cooked in it, which comes from the bayou people down south. Benny has been a fisherman for 41 years. He primarily catches shrimp. They've been living in a FEMA trailer for about six months now. It is three bedroom, but the bedrooms are really small, but it's manageable, you know. Five of them live in the trailer permanently, and some of the days of the week, it's seven people, including two grandchildren. One is seven and the other one is two. And how do you keep them busy in that space? They have toys. We kind of like walk over toys all the time, but we just play and we do a lot of puzzles and games together. We draw. Her grandson is in school now, but the local elementary school was severely damaged by the hurricane. So he takes the bus an hour and a half each day to a nearby town. Oh, it's hard. It's hard. It's not always air conditioned or things like that. Like what's bad is my grandson, he gets sick, So the hour and a half is very hard for him. And it's kind of scary because it's a high school. So they putting all these little kids, you know, into these middle high and um, they're adapting. They're adapting. We were just hoping they will hit a more permanent situation by now, but they don't. Immediately after the hurricane, Benny was sure he wanted to stay and rebuild and train his son to take over the family fishing business. Tammy was more uncertain, and that still hasn't changed. I mean, we're very grateful to not have lost the boat through this because this is our livelihood. But we're struggling. Our lives, our house, trying to sell the shrimp to make money to stay here to deal with inflation. But we're going to stick it out because, I mean, at our age and my son's just coming into this and we're trying to put our family back together. So our first step is staying and trying to get a house to put us in. But it is very hard, very hard. I think our little community down here is taking a beat and beans. We're so close to the coast. 
Um, I know there have been a lot of months of uncertainty and instability in the, in the industry. There was a long time when you couldn't go out at all, right? How did you get by? How have you been getting by through all of this? Depleting savings. I've worked 41 years in this business, and uh, it's really, really been tough. I mean, losing what we did lose with the hurricane and everything, and now depleting savings that I've had, it's 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 going to be a long haul for us to get anywhere back to normal. I mean, it's it's just a lot. It really, really is. When we last met, you both were in different places about that. Benny, you didn't want to go. Tammy, you, as I've mentioned, were conflicted. I just want to play back some tape from our conversation. Actually, if y'all can peek out right there, you see him when he's out there fishing. My son, he's fishing. That's his joy. And that's why we're going to stay. And I'm going to stay. May evacuate for anything that comes, though, because I'm scared. But we're going to stay. You've made peace. You're making peace with the idea of staying? I guess, because I don't think he's going to leave. He never wanted to leave. I'm not going. Never wanted to leave. How do those conversations sound these days? I still have the same feelings about it, me. I mean, this was hopefully a a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It may happen again, but to be honest with you, I I don't honestly think I'll be here to see the next one like that. Uh, I'm thinking it's just that far away. We hope. Right. Well, Mother Nature is his own thing. You know, I mean, whatever it's going to decide to do, it's going to do. How hopeful are you, though, Tammy? Uh, Just listening to myself talk like that, you know, I don't know, it's emotional kind of thing. He actually, my son actually went out and took the boat for the first time by himself. It was a good experience for him. And I think being new in the business, he is getting a very hard lesson on all the debris and the trees, the islands of mud. He is experiencing that from the beginning. He's not had a chance to go out there and see what the fishing is, the joy, the easier part of it, which is not easy. But he did great. He really stepped up. He's learning. And it makes me feel like I can't cheat him of that. This is this is what he wants to do. And I, I really hope that he could do this for the rest of his life. But I'm not sure the coastal Louisiana and the government of how they're trying to save our coast is going to let him do that. And that's what scares me. You know, I don't have to tell you, coastal Louisiana is a place that gets big storms, and that's only accelerating with climate change. Aren't you afraid of another big one, if not for yourself, for your son? I am. I am. I am because of, I tell Benny all the time, we're hoping for no hurricanes to come hit us. That would be great to have a year or two to try to rebuild and do things. But we really don't know even what a minor hurricane will bring us here until we get one. Benny, I want to ask you, Tammy says she is afraid of the next big hurricane. Are you? No. No, it's it's, it's Mother Nature. I mean, I, you can't predict it. You can't stop it. I've always been taught that from my dad down to when I was a, a little bitty bitty kid working on a boat with him. And you'd see the weather come up on you, and he says, it doesn't pay for us to go anywhere, son. You can't run from weather. Sooner or later, it's going to find you. It found us. 
if it's meant for me, it's meant for me. And I mean, that's the way I look at it. Benny and Tammy are thinking about the future differently, but they plan on staying and rebuilding as soon as they're able. In the meantime, they're finding moments of joy where they can, including celebrating 36 years of marriage. We actually got away to Mississippi. We went and found us, um, I found us, a nice little room with a big soap tub so I can go and lay down and soak and relax. You know, bubbles everywhere was good. And we miss it. We miss the littlest things. But when you're dealing with everything we had here, the mud, the, the water, we still don't have level ground. Our bodies ache. We're getting older. So me, myself, I enjoyed just soaking in the tub. But we, we enjoyed the time just to be alone. It was very nice. Benny and Tammy Alexi, speaking to us from their hometown of Barataria, Louisiana. That commitment to place, that's something we heard about when Gulf States newsroom reporter Shalina Chatlani introduced us to Donald Caesar last year. He and his uncle Melvin live in Laplace, Louisiana, a city outside the New Orleans levee system that was pummeled by Hurricane Ida's floodwaters and wind. Shalina talked to Donald as he watched over the moldy, broken, and asbestos-filled remains of his family's ancestral home and the remnants of a tree his great-grandparents had planted over a hundred years ago. This tree, this tree was like comfort. It was like a comfort zone. It was all, it was always joyful. It was to feel like a chimpanzee to try to climb it. And this is where everybody came together. A year later, the yard, the home, and the tree are still unrecognizable. On a warm afternoon, Melvin and Donald Caesar sit outside their new campers, the ones they say they got from FEMA. On this day, they're in good spirits and happy to give me the exclusive tour. Let's check it out. Yeah, you don't want to. You're not doing a tour. You want, me, you want to escort? Go ahead in there. Yeah, you've been around, you've been around here too much. You've been around us too long now. <laughs> you famous. Donald and Melvin's campers are next door to each other and just inches from the uninhabitable family house, but they're making the best of it. The food up yeah. in there, the refrigerator, cooking stuff. I'm, I'm cool, all right. All I just want them to come do something. This, this, this is out. Melvin Caesar bangs on the hollowed-out frame of the family's house. He's content to be living in the camper, but it took six months to get it. We head inside the family home. It's gutted with overfilled toilets, dirt, and broken glass strewn about. How do you feel when you look around and you see this? I don't even talk about it. I feel like I look like I'm getting left alone because they ain't doing nothing for me. Look, look at this house. Look at it. You decided to come back to Laplace. Yeah, I was born and reared here. Think of my mother and father. They built this house. They try to get me to go here, they try to get me. I'm not going nowhere else. I'm going where I was born and raised at. Melvin says he didn't have insurance on the home, since it's always just been passed down. Donald says his uncle just needed help figuring out what to do, and he hasn't gotten it yet. This is like a family house, so he didn't have the actual paperwork to really do everything that he wanted. It was like all the money wasn't coming to him. So it was all kind of red tape. Despite the uncertainty about the future, Donald and his uncle are committed to staying, remaining positive, and believe the situation will get better. Well, I just thank God. And I know that he's going to come and give us something else. He's going to come and, you know what I'm saying? Because he know how we endured. And when it comes to the 100-year-old tree the family loves so much, the Caesars are just as hopeful about its future. That tree, that was like the strongest tree on the block. That's you right. feel me? But it's going to grow and it's going to come back some kind of way, you know what I mean? Or we just move on to another tree. 
And like the Alexis, that resilience is fueled by the love of their home, which continues to keep them there. For NPR News, I'm Shalina Chatlani in Laplace. The Caesars and the Alexis, just two of the countless families living with the very real and often devastating effects of climate change. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, we head to Martha's Vineyard, where residents are trying to find food and shelter for 50 South American migrants. Florida's governor sent there by plane last night. Losses across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a half percent, 173 points, to close at 30,962. S&P fell more than one and a tenth percent to close at 3901. The Nasdaq gave up almost one and a half percent to close at 11,552. Massachusetts casinos have made a total of roughly $92 million from gambling in August. That's according to new numbers from the Gaming Commission. The state's two resort casinos include MGM Springfield and Encore Boston Harbor. They're taxed at 25 percent of gross revenue. The smaller Plain Ridge Park Casino in Plainville is taxed at 49 percent. Marketplace has business news coming up at 630. It's now 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th, semesteroff.com. And Huntington Theater, presenting Sing Street, a new musical based on the hit indie film, Huntington Calderwood BCA, now through October 9th, huntingtontheater.org. Coming to City Space Tuesday, September 27th, the live taping of the podcast No One Is Coming to Save Us, in which host Gloria Riviera explores the child care crisis. Get free tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Juana Summers. State superintendents of education used to be somewhat obscure. And in many states, they are appointed, not elected. But after pandemic shutdowns and debates around curriculum, public schools have become a new political battleground in everything from district school board elections to statewide races for governor. In six conservative-led states, Republicans are moving intently to get their candidates for superintendent elected in November. Juan Perez Jr. is following all of those races for Politico, and he joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Okay, so in the six states you have focused on in your reporting, what types of issues are these candidates running on? Well, there's a lot of concerns about critical race theory. There's a lot of concerns about parents' rights in education. There's a lot of concerns about state legislation that's uh, so far targeted kind of cultural concerns that we've long talked about and noted, like uh, the ability of transgender students to participate on sports teams that match with their gender identity, the role of uh, curriculum, race, and history, what kind of books should or shouldn't be in classrooms. 
these issues have predominated conservative primary campaigns in a lot of these states for clear reasons. They help motivate the base, for starters. But one of the interesting through lines that we're going to have to watch here are whether moderate voters, whether independent voters and moderate Republicans are kind of put off by some of the culture war concerns and more focused on something like academics, bringing students back onto track after the pandemic. Okay, let's dig into the details a little bit here. Can you give us some examples of how Republicans are supporting these candidates? Like, what kind of money are we talking about here? Okay, we're not talking tens of millions of dollars, but it's still pretty notable, okay? Let's go to Oklahoma for a moment. For starters, uh, the Americans for Prosperity Group and uh, some other education organizations in the state have poured in a combined hundreds of thousands of dollars to back the campaign of Ryan Walters, who's the Republican candidate for superintendent in that state. It should be noted, of course, that former Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has also put in thousands of dollars of her own money, and her family has as well. We're not talking huge amounts here, but it is clear that there is substantial attention on these issues. You know, it's a little surprising to me. It feels like Republicans are investing more attention into down-ballot public education races and these issues, even perhaps than during the Trump administration. Is that what you've seen? I think that's true. For starters, I I think we should note education and schooling have always been political, right? Yet the pandemic, our nation's ongoing reckoning with race, gender identity have made it clear that the environment was ripe for a a shift, a, a pendulum swing. Recent polling from one Democratic education advocacy group from this summer concluded that parents and voters of color in dozens of congressional battlegrounds, they were more likely to trust Republicans on education policy than Democrats. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the attention that conservative Republicans across the country are paying to these offices. Have Democratic candidates offered any sort of counter-narrative or funding to match that intensity on the right? I think they're working on it. The challenge is whether it's actually breaking through, particularly in red states where, again, this stuff is so potent, such a potent issue for base voters. There's emerging polling and and messaging guidance and strategy coming out of Democrats right now that are trying to get candidates focused on, I guess what I would describe as as bread and butter issues, back on academics, back on the classroom, back on teacher pay, back on what we need to do to make sure children catch up after years of disrupted schooling amid the coronavirus pandemic. And I think that's partly because they want to appeal not only to voters who are very concerned about these issues, but also, again, moderates and independents who may be turned off by some of the far-right culture war messaging that's been animating primary campaigns. We've been speaking with Juan Perez, Jr., education reporter for Politico. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Martha's Vineyard, local officials are scrambling to find shelter and food for some 50 migrants who were dropped off there by plane last night. A surprise for the migrants and for the people on the vineyard. WBUR Simon Rios is on the island now, and he's been at the church where the migrants are staying, at least for now. Simon, what are you seeing there? Well, right now, Lisa, we got here a couple hours ago, and uh, there are about four dozen of these Venezuelan immigrants who are, um, you know, filing in and out of the church. This is, you know, in the middle of Edgartown, this small, idyllic uh, village, um, and it's just been overtaken by by media cameras and uh, all sorts of people from the community have come through to help. One local Martha's Vineyarder said. He's thrilled to, to be able to lend a hand to these people who are so in need. And he also said that uh, Martha's Vineyard hasn't seen this kind of media 
coverage since Chappaquiddick in the Ted Kennedy days. So I, that I, tells you something. I thought it was going to be Jaws. But but can you tell us <laughs> what the people there, the migrants themselves, did they know where they were going? Do they know actually where in the world they are right now? What's what's their reaction? It's the craziest story. So they came by land from Venezuela through Central America into Mexico, turned themselves in to immigration authorities in Texas. And in Texas, they were released and they were staying at, at, at a shelter of some sort in San Antonio. And they were approached by somebody who they only know as Perla, Perla. They don't know who this person was. It was a woman who was offering to help them and to bring them to a place where there were going to be resources, where they were going to be given money and a place to stay and even English classes. And uh, it, with very little other information, uh, and they weren't told until the day before they left that they were going to Massachusetts and they had no idea what Martha's Vineyard was. They arrived here, nobody on the island knew that they were coming. Police came, the fire department came, the Red Cross came out. And all of a sudden, these four dozen immigrants from Venezuela were at the center of, of a national political firestorm. A national political firestorm uh, because there are uh, there's a belief among especially congressmen like uh, Bill Keating, who represents the Cape and Islands, who says that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is pulling a stunt in treating these migrants as political chattel. Do the migrants you've spoken with see themselves as political pawns? What are they telling you? They're struggling to understand what's going on. I asked them that if they if they are aware of the political commentary that we're hearing about the Republican governor of Florida who wants to run for president, uh, getting them here to, to gain political points. They have no idea about any of that. Um, but, you know, they were literally coming up to me asking for me to explain that in, in Spanish. Uh, and they were really just blown away to think that, you know, they came to this country to try and work. And they feel like they were hoodwinked and being brought to Martha's Vineyard. Um, they have immigration appointments. They uh, are claiming asylum and they have appointments in various parts of the country that they need to get to. And I mean, in like Los Angeles, I believe in Florida, Washington, D.C. And somehow they were tricked into getting onto a plane and they were dropped off in Martha's Vineyard. And they're all struggling to understand what, what's going on. And what else are they asking you or telling you? And what kind of conditions are they in right now? Because obviously the people at the Vineyard were completely unprepared. Look, I think the people of Martha's Vineyard uh, feel very welcoming. They feel very protective of the folks. I mean, dozens of people from the community have been coming by the church and bringing donations and offering to help in any way they can. They feel like uh, they, it's, it's ridiculous that, that these folks were brought here, but that while they're here, we want to do everything we can to, to make them feel welcome. Um, some even said they'd like to, to see them stay here and work. Uh, and there's really nothing to prevent them from doing that as long as they can figure out their immigration status. Although Martha's Vineyard isn't actually uh, a place with a lot of, a lot of housing to, to offer to these folks long term. So how long will they be? Does anyone know how long they'll be at the church where they are right now and if they have other options? I think that's all up in the air. Uh, there have been lawyers coming in from Boston. You know, one one good thing about all this from the perspective of the, the immigrants, they didn't have attorneys representing them. But now all of a sudden they're at the, at the middle of this of this uh, this firestorm and uh, people from the lawyers committee for civil rights and other outfits in Boston have 
have come to uh, Martha's Vineyard. I spoke to Ivan Espinosa from the Lawyers Committee, uh, and he's saying, now, you know, now these folks have legal representation, mm -hmm. at least some legal advice. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, on top of the fact that the people of Martha's Vineyard have been extremely welcoming to them. So I, I think a lot of them feel like they're in a much better position now than they were before. Thank you. WBRO Simone Rios, thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. WBUR supporters include CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and members of his administration are applauding the tentative agreement reached between freight railroads and the unions representing thousands of workers. That agreement averts a strike that could have exacerbated the nation's supply chain problems. Speaking from the White House, Biden called the deal a win for America and for both sides involved. With this agreement, railroad companies will be able to retain and recruit workers. They'll be able to continue to operate effectively as a vital piece of our economy. They're really the backbone of the economy. I have this visual image of rails being the backbone. I mean, literally, the backbone of the economy. The tentative deal was reached early this morning after a marathon bargaining session that was mediated by the Labor Department. The deal includes a 24% raise and relaxes some strict railroad policies on working hours. That agreement now goes to union members for a vote. Caregivers of disabled veterans received some welcome news today. NPR's Quill Lawrence tells us the VA announced it will not remove anyone from its caregiver program for at least three years. The VA program pays a stipend and other benefits to the caregivers of disabled veterans. It began in 2011 as a small program for Iraq and Afghanistan vets, but in 2018, Congress passed a phased expansion to all veterans. With that expansion, though, everyone had to reapply. For reasons the VA has not been able to explain, 90% of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans were slated to be kicked off the revamped program. Amid an outcry from caregivers, VA halted the process last March, but only for one year. Now, VA says no one will be kicked off the program for three years. Caregiver advocates say this doesn't fix the problem, but it does give veterans and their loved ones much-needed breathing room. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. Stocks finished sharply lower on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 173 points, down half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Social service agencies across Massachusetts are on standby to help the nearly 50 migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard yesterday. And Governor Charlie Baker says the state is also taking steps to provide necessary services to the migrants. WBUR's Steve Brown has more. In a written statement, the governor said the administration is looking to set up temporary shelter and humanitarian services at Joint Base Cape Cod. He also thanked everyone on the ground who quickly provided assistance to the migrants on the vineyard. He went on to say the Commonwealth has many resources for assisting individuals that arrive in Massachusetts with varying immigration statuses and needs. He said the state is working with all partners involved to make sure those resources are available to the migrants that arrived last night. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The agency Martha's Vineyard Community Services is getting essential care to the migrants. As WBR's Josie Guarino reports, the agency was one of the first stops migrants made after they arrived on the island. 
right now they are in this state of shock and are trying to figure out where they are and what is next for them. That's Martha's Vineyard Community Services spokesperson Rebecca Pierce. She says her agency is coordinating with the sheriff's department to help feed, house, clothe, and offer counseling to the roughly 50 migrant workers who showed up on the island Wednesday. Things usually wind down there this time of year, but Pierce says her nonprofit will rise to the new challenge. Community Services, as always, has provided support to our island community, and we consider these new additions just that, new additions to our island community, and we're going to make them feel warm and welcome just as we would anyone else. Pierce says there's been an outpouring of support from the community. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Five women are on track to win statewide office in Massachusetts this year, according to a new poll from Suffolk University. The poll finds Maura Healy has the support of more than half of expected voters in the governor's race. Republican Jeff Deal is polling in the 20s. Healy's fellow Democrat, Andrea Campbell, holds a 25-point lead over Republican Jay McMahon in the contest for attorney general. Uh, Democratic women are also up big in races for lieutenant governor, auditor, and treasurer. Smith College in Northampton has named its next leader. The board of trustees announced today Sarah Willie LeBreton has been named Smith's 12th president. She serves as provost now and dean of the faculty at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Willie LeBreton will take over for Kathleen McCartney in July of next year. In the forecast, should be a cool and dry evening. Clear skies tonight, down around 50 degrees. Sun's back for tomorrow with high temperatures in the 70s. Weekend's looking really nice. Sunday, sunny again in the low 70s, followed by sunshine on Sunday. Saturday, I should say, sunny in the low 70s. Sunshine on Sunday. There is the chance of a shower or thunderstorm on Sunday afternoon. Should be warmer, up around 85 degrees. 68 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. A tense start to the week gave way to a big sigh of relief at the White House this morning. As you might guess, I am very pleased. (laughs) And President Biden did look happy as he announced a tentative deal between freight railroads and rail workers unions, averting a nationwide strike. This is a win for tens of thousands of rail workers and for their dignity and the dignity of their work. It's a recognition of that. Biden said the deal was good for railway companies as well, saying it'll help them recruit and retain workers. The two sides had been trying to hash out a contract for almost three years. For more on the latest developments, we're joined now by NPR's Andrea Shu as well as Frank Morris from member station KCUR in Kansas City. Hello to you both. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Andrea, what do we know about what is in this tentative deal? Well, this deal would give more than 100,000 rail workers a significant increase in wages, 24% over five years. And just to be clear, this contract covers a period going back to 2020. That's how long the negotiations have been going on. So a lot of that raise did get right away. At 24%, it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but of course, inflation is high, and the unions had asked for an even bigger increase to account for that. 
but really the key sticking point for the union was not wages. It was these strict attendance policies that the railroads have. The unions call them draconian. Currently, workers are penalized for taking unscheduled time off, even if they're sick. Now, the rail companies say these policies are aimed at improving consistency and reliability for both crews and customers. But in any event, the deal brokered here in Washington would give workers the ability to take time off for illness. They'd likely have to prove they were sick. But the details have to be worked out at the local level. Okay, so Frank, how are the workers responding to this agreement? Well, it's mixed, Sarah. It's important to note that the members haven't seen the details of this agreement yet. Most of the ones posting on Facebook and Twitter are not too happy about it. A lot of people say it doesn't do enough to ease the hardships that working on the railroad imposes. Uh, A lot of these jobs are tough. Uh, Michael Lindsay, a locomotive engineer who works for Union Pacific, says workers miss holidays, birthdays, and they're often away from their families for days at a stretch. I have horrible regrets about the, the time not being with my daughter as much as I could have. You know, I try to make it up the best I can, but I feel like she might be coming to a point in her life being 11 where she she acts like maybe she's starting to resent me for it a bit. And the pay hike has to be taken in perspective. Brian Walker maintains railroad tracks for Union Pacific. He hasn't had a raise in three years, and most of the 24% offered is retroactive. And when the agreement ends in 2024, workers will start another long negotiating process and another long stretch without a pay increase. Still, Dennis Pierce, president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, says the deal on the table makes lots of headway on quality of life issues and pay. But he says it's going to take a few days just to digest everything hammered out in 20 hours of negotiations last night. Well, we've been up all night. Uh, We just wrapped this up at 5 in the morning. The task now is to to get it to where we can explain it to folks, uh, get it out there, explain it to them, and let them make their own decision. Democracy is the key of a union movement. And Andrea, we heard President Biden talk about the dignity of the workers, and it sounds like quality of life issues were really central to these negotiations. Is that is that surprising? Well, given everything that workers have been through in this pandemic, I think we shouldn't be surprised. You know, workers don't feel valued, especially essential workers who never stopped working and put themselves at risk. And one of these uh, railroad companies, BNSF, they actually introduced the kind of a strict attendance policy I just mentioned just this past February, two years into the pandemic, and the workers were just outraged over it. They wanted to strike back then, but a federal judge blocked them from doing so. So workers say they're in a terrible position. Either they're punished for calling out sick or they have to go to work feeling ill, which could be dangerous. And, you know, Sarah, the unions had originally asked for 15 paid sick days. They're not getting that, not even close. This tentative deal does include one paid personal day. That was the recommendation of the Presidential Emergency Board. But by getting in some language about how and when the rail workers can tend to their personal medical needs, they have set a precedent and these kind of work that these kind of workplace attendance policies are something that they can bargain over. And that's a big deal. Of course, this is a tentative deal, as we've been saying. Frank, what's next here? When can we expect to vote? Well, not today or tomorrow. Dennis Pierce says it'll likely take three weeks to get the tentative contract in front of workers. And he says the union will need time to explain exactly what's in it for them. And he says it'll take another two or three weeks to collect and count the votes. He says the deadline for getting something approved hasn't been set, though he says he's in a hurry to finalize the agreement and get his members the pay bump and a little better work-life flexibility they need. But this is not a done deal. 
members have to vote and they could reject the agreement. That happened last fall at John Deere. About 10,000 UAW workers went on strike, rejecting a tentative agreement that would have boosted pay by about 20 percent. Ahead of a potential strike, some rail services were suspended, including Amtrak. Andrea, to what extent are things getting back to normal now? Well, a lot of Amtrak trains remain canceled today, but uh, Amtrak says it plans to have all their trains running again tomorrow. And they are rebooking people whose plans were disrupted this week. And then there were the rail carriers who had stopped moving hazardous materials and time-sensitive goods just in case there was a strike. They've informed their customers they're working to resume normal operations as soon as possible as well. NPR's Andrea Shu and Frank Morris from member station KCUR in Kansas City. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Sarah. It is time to pour one out for the titan of bargain wine, Fred Franzia, the man behind the famous Charles Shaw wine known as Two Buck Chuck, died Tuesday at age 79. NPR's Wynn Davis has this appreciation. Fred Franzia was famous for claiming that no bottle of wine should cost more than $10. In 2002, he started selling his Charles Shaw wine at Trader Joe's. Two Buck Chuck was a real phenomenon because it was relatively good wine that was sold in a respectable bottle. It wasn't screw cap and it was $1.99 a bottle. It was absolutely unheard of. That's Carol Emmert, a former wine columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. She covered the rise of Two Buck Chuck. It had a different profile than cheap wine. It tasted like good wine. Franzia came from a family of winemakers who sold their company to Coca-Cola. It later became the familiar Franzia boxed wine. Fred was angry about his family's decision to sell, and in 1973 started his own company with his brother and cousin. But not everyone was a fan. Karen McNeil wrote the Wine Bible and says while affordable wine is an honorable business, many had issues with how Charles Shaw wine was marketed. The fallacy of Two Buck Chuck is that it implied to consumers that there's some beautiful vineyard somewhere. In reality, Franzia's wines often included bulk shipments of grapes from other places. But Carol Emmert said he didn't care what the wine elites thought. He just threw the rules out the window and did what he wanted to do. And to that, we can raise a glass. Wynn Davis, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's not often the Red Sox will concede that the Yankees have a special player. He's been amazing. He's been really good with everything that is going on, what they're doing in the division and all the contract stuff and a free agent. You know, he's locked in. That's what Red Sox manager Alex Cora said about Yankee slugger Aaron Judge. Judge hit his 57th home run of the season the other night against Boston, and he's got a chance to surpass one of the league's most cherished records. For more, let's bring in Washington Post national baseball writer Chelsea Janes. Hey, Chelsea, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Okay, so like I just mentioned, he just hit homer number 57. Remind us about this record that he's chasing. 
Well, it's it's a very complicated record. He is chasing the record for most home runs in a single season, which seems fairly straightforward. But the problem is that in the late 90s and early 2000s, that record was broken several times by people who have since been found to have been using steroids and, and you know, in, in layman's terms, cheating. And so the record that he is currently closest to is 61 home runs in a season, which is held by Roger Maris back from the early part of the 20th century. And, and that's the one that everyone says, this is clean. We know no one was cheating for this, but... There are more on the horizon, including Barry Bonds, who hit 73 home runs. And so there's sort of this push and pull of, of which you believe is the real record. How much do you worry about cheating and how far can Aaron Judge go through those numbers? Okay, and I, I guess I have to ask, I mean, this is a record that is associated with the Yankees. So does that put more pressure on Aaron Judge to deliver? I think so. I think that one of the things that people really can't imagine until they sort of see it firsthand is the difference in the pressure that you feel as a New York Yankee versus pretty much anywhere else in the baseball world and, you know, in a lot of places in sports. And the fans there know what they're talking about. They have a very low tolerance for being disappointed. (laughs) uh, And he has raised the bar. And so, you know, I think... You know, for him to do this, he's got to do it the right way. He's got to say all the right things. You know, you don't want to take down a legends record in New York and do it in a way that is disrespectful. So he's walking a fine line and having an incredible season under really tremendous scrutiny. And we should just be clear here. Aaron Judge is a player who is known for hitting a ton of home runs. Back in 2017, he hit 52. Last season, 39. Any sense of why he is having, frankly, such a breakout incredible year? One reason is, you know, he's healthy. It's it's a long season, and in years past, he has not been able to stay healthy the whole time, which has limited his opportunities. From what I've heard from talking to people close to him, he's also just sort of matured. He's learned what to swing at, what not to swing at. He's been really patient. He hasn't really gone through any slumps this year, which is really rare for a baseball player. He's just sort of been able to cruise with his swing where he wants it, and I think sort of everything has come together at the perfect time for him. But, you know, more than anything, this is what this guy can do when he's healthy. And knock on wood, he's been healthy. We've talked a lot about Aaron Judge, but I want to ask you, how's the team doing? How are the Yankees doing this year? You know, they started off on a really historic pace. It looked like they were going to be one of the more dominant Yankee teams in history. And a large part of that was what Aaron Judge was doing. In August and in recent weeks, they've really fallen off the table. They've gone from chasing all-time win records to just trying to win their division and and kind of skirt safely into the playoffs. And so they've got a lot of injured guys. They've kind of had a lot of things thrown their way, and and they're kind of trying to hang on for dear life, which, which makes what Aaron Judge is doing all the more impressive because instead of having a lot of people around him and not having to carry the load, he's really had to carry the load and not only hit home runs for the record, but sort of do all this to help the team stay afloat, and somehow he keeps doing it. That is Washington Post national baseball writer Chelsea Janes. Thank you so much for coming back and talking to us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox take a breather tonight. Tomorrow they finish up their homestand by hosting the Royals in a three-game weekend set. A waning moon tonight. Clear skies to take a look at it. Cool and dry again, down around 50 degrees overnight. Then the work week should end with gorgeous September sunshine. Breezy tomorrow, coolish with highs in the mid-70s. Weekends looking pretty nice, Saturday especially. We should see sunshine yet again, 
temperatures in the low 70s. Sunshine on Sunday, but there is the outside chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. Should be windy and warmer on Sunday, making it all the way up to the mid-80s. If you're looking for something binge-worthy this weekend, check out Here and Now's special podcast series, Captured. Host Scott Tong reports on a brazen attempt to take over the EPA and the pencil pushers who pushed back. All five parts drop today in the Here and Now podcast. This is WBUR. When Roe was overturned in June, Republicans were really caught flat-footed. And despite pushing for exactly this for many, many decades, they really had no national message or national plan for how to operate in this brand-new post-Roe environment. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Singer-songwriter Gabby Moreno's seventh full-length album came out this spring. It's called Allegoria, and now she's touring to support it. Beto Arcos tells us the story of this L.A.-based singer born in Guatemala making music on her own terms. On a recent Friday afternoon, I meet Gabby Moreno at a small West Los Angeles theater called Largo at the Coronet. She's been coming to this historic nightclub for more than 20 years, both as a guest singer and to perform her own show. Here she is at Largo, singing a bolero by Mexico's Agustin Lara. It just became like this place that I would just go to get inspired. And my God, I was so inspired. I really believe that I, you know, something changed in me of how I wanted to express myself musically. Moreno arrived in Los Angeles in 2001 and released her first CD in 2008. Seven albums later, Moreno found her voice singing a handful of Latin American music genres and a wide spectrum of American music, R&B, soul, pop, rock, country, old time, and more. Moreno is equally at ease writing and singing songs in Spanish and English. If it's all too much, take it down a notch, keep moving along, cause sometimes nobody's wrong. But it wasn't always that way. Moreno first started writing songs in English. I just remember thinking there's no way I'm going to write it in Spanish. I just didn't think it would sound authentic singing this style of music in Spanish because that's what I wanted to do. I was like, oh, I want to do blues. I want to do jazz. That all changed when she started playing at Largo. Her friend, bass player David Pilch, was doing a weekly residency at the club and invited Moreno to join him with any song she wanted to sing. And I remember him telling me, like, hey, why don't you bring a bolero? And I was like, a bolero? Like, I mean, really, at that point, I knew all of these boleros just from growing up in Guatemala and what my parents would play all that, but I didn't know, like, how to play or, you know, even, like, I don't think I'd ever sung a bolero. And that's when I first started playing that song, Quizás. It was up here at Largo. And I remember, like, 
you know, people coming up to me after the shows and saying like, that kind of music, like songs in Spanish, you should be doing. During one of the shows at Largo, she met renowned composer and arranger Van Dyke Parks. Moreno says they talked for hours. He said to me, this is the music that I grew up listening to. I would play shows with my brother back in the 60s, singing like corridos and rancheras and boleros. And, and I love this music so much. We have to do something together. Es la historia de un amor como no hay otro igual que me hizo comprender todo el bien, todo el mal. In 2019, Moreno and Parks released the album titled Spangled. It was nominated for a Latin Grammy the following year. It's a Tuesday night at Verse, a supper club in L.A.'s North Hollywood. Moreno's side project, the vocal trio The Songbirds, are celebrating their new album. Jackson Brown first saw Moreno perform with the Songbirds at Largo. She's so diverse, is the thing. Gabby has immersed herself in all this American music. And one of the times I saw her at the Largo, she was playing electric guitar and playing this really rock stuff, really punky, very punky kind of, you know. She gets it. She really gets to, to the essence of lots of different musical styles. Moreno's latest album, Allegoria, is the sum of more than 20 years honing her craft. She says she can hear how much she has evolved, not only as a songwriter, but also as a singer. I feel much more connected with the songs that I'm writing and with my experience, especially my experience as an immigrant here in the U.S., even after all these years, because I've been here for a long time, over 20 years, I still feel that, you know, my, my home is Guatemala and, and, you know, my whole family's there. Ay, pobre de mi alma, que no encuentra la calma solo en tu mirada. In the song, Till Waking Light, Moreno sings in English and Spanish from the perspective of an immigrant, making the treacherous journey from Central America to the U.S. And I personally know people that have made that crazy, crazy journey. And it was really that. I was just kind of trying to think what's going on in their head, like how desperate must they be to like up and leave everything they know and risk their lives just to like come to a place where they'll have more opportunities and be in a safer environment. Guitarist, pianist and producer David Garza met Moreno at Largo 18 years ago. Garza has played in most of her solo albums and dozens of shows. For a, a creator, a songwriter of her stature to be blessed with a voice like that, it's an unbelievable package that is a gift to anybody that comes across it. You don't, you don't usually get that kind of, the voice and the writing talent. This month, Moreno is embarking on a big tour of Europe. She'll be doing 28 shows in six weeks, covering 11 countries, including Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, in Ireland. One thing is for sure, Gabi Moreno will always come back to her favorite venue, Largo at the Coronet. For NPR News, I'm Beto Arcos.
It's a strange moment in the pandemic. Mask mandates and other restrictions have nearly disappeared. For most vaccinated people, the risk of severe illness has gone way down. Yet hundreds of people are still dying of COVID every day, especially older people. And infectious disease experts are divided on which precautions make sense to prevent those deaths. It's just too much to believe that we've now gotten comfortable with four to 500 people dying a day. And, you know, every opportunity where the numbers start to go down, we remove some mitigation strategy and we keep it at this horrible plateau. Protecting the most vulnerable going forward on today's episode of our daily news podcast. It's called Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The forecast, our stretch of lovely weather should continue. Tonight, clear skies, cool once again, down around 50 degrees. The work week should end with sunshine. Tomorrow should be breezy and coolish. In the mid-70s, lots of sunshine. Then the weekend is looking really nice, especially Saturday. Sunny again, temperatures in the low 70s. Sunshine on Sunday as well. There is the off chance of showers and thunderstorms sometime in the afternoon. Should be windy and warmer up around 85 degrees on Sunday. The sun's now setting before 7 o'clock. Sunset tonight is at 6.53. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.59. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former Boston Mayor and now U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh stood alongside President Biden today to announce a tentative deal between rail companies and their workers that averts a nationwide strike that could have devastated the U.S. economy. Details on the deal coming up on this Thursday, September 15th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the White House is spotlighting the rise in hate-fueled violence in today's United We Stand Summit. It aims to kickstart efforts to help communities prevent, respond to, and recover from attacks. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, a ballet dancer with the National Opera of Ukraine volunteered to fight. Everyone understood that he would give his duty for our country, for our people, for our children. He was always standing on the side of justice. We remember the dancer killed on the battlefield this week. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says averting a railroad strike originally set to begin after midnight is a big win for America. Marathon negotiations last night produced a tentative agreement that stopped disruption that could have cost billions of dollars a day and stranded thousands of travelers. Frank Morse of member station KCUR is the story. The big freight railroads averted a near total shutdown of the rail system, primarily by offering a small concession, a few days of unpaid sick leave. Railroads keep locomotive engineers and conductors on call much of the time. Railroad staffing is very tight, and train operators can be penalized for taking unplanned time off for doctor's visits or even medical emergencies. With sick leave and a few other concessions, unions representing rail workers think they have a proposal their membership can approve. The proposal would grant a 24 percent pay raise by 2024. Union members still need to ratify the agreement. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says flights carrying unauthorized migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard are intended to protect his state from costs associated with illegal immigration. NPR's Greg Allen reports Florida chartered two planes Wednesday to fly dozens of migrants from San Antonio to the resort island without warning. Governor DeSantis has criticized the Biden administration for not doing enough to stem the tide of people coming over the southern border. At his request, Republican lawmakers set up a $12 million fund to transport unauthorized migrants out of Florida. And DeSantis says flying them from Texas is part of an innovative approach to make sure they don't come to Florida. Our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state. And it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. DeSantis is running for re-election as governor and is a likely contender for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. According to media reports, Tesla is putting its plans of producing electric vehicle or EV batteries in its German plant on hold in order to benefit from tax incentives in the U.S., more from NPR's Rob Smits. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the U.S. company has suspended plans to produce batteries at its gigafactory outside of Berlin. Instead, the company is looking into producing those batteries in the U.S., where it could now qualify for EV and battery manufacturing credits under the new Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden signed into law last month. The EV maker, meanwhile, is said to be seeking approval in Texas to set up a lithium refinery with the construction possibly starting later this year. To find a time mortgage rates are as high as they are now, you'd have to go back almost 14 years to the heart of the financial crisis brought on by the bursting of the housing market bubble. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac reporting today the average rate on a 30-year mortgage loan this week climbed above 6% for the first time since 2008. Stocks closed lower. The Dow was down 173 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. 50 South American migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard yesterday are now getting services on the island. They were flown there by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as part of his policy to send undocumented immigrants to more liberal states. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, over the past few months, there's been a substantial increase in migrant families arriving in Massachusetts. Many are asylum seekers who need urgent medical care and shelter. Many families are coming from South American countries and Haiti, often fleeing violence. Georgia Thomas Diaz works at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. She says before the pandemic, her organization saw about one new homeless family a week. Now the number is much higher. Sometimes I have like 
five or six families here in the lobby. And I'm talking about like a family of five, a family of four um, all together. She's seeing people who haven't eaten enough, diabetics going without medication, and pregnant women who need medical attention. State officials say they're working to marshal more resources. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Federal law enforcement officials in Boston are charging a Westfield woman with calling in a bomb threat to Boston Children's Hospital last month. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, prosecutors say Catherine Levy is connected to one of over a dozen threats made to the hospital over the past few weeks. Children's Hospital has been the target of a sustained online harassment campaign regarding their pediatric and adolescent transgender health program. Prosecutors say Levy called the hospital, said there was a bomb on the way, and, quote, you better evacuate everybody, you sickos. The hospital locked down, and a bomb squad determined there were no explosives. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins says hoax threats instill terror and consume valuable time and resources. Healthcare providers who support and offer care to gender-diverse and transgendered individuals and their families deserve to do so without fear. Levy faces up to five years in prison if convicted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts is moving forward with its plan to return billions of dollars to state taxpayers. The state auditor said today the state's required to return nearly $3 billion to taxpayers. It's thanks to an obscure 36-year-old law that caps how much revenue the state can collect. Details of how the surplus money will be distributed are still being worked out. The state of commuting in Massachusetts is inspiring little optimism finds a new Suffolk University poll. About 70 percent of respondents say traffic issues have not improved over the past four years. Nearly half of those polled say traffic has gotten worse. The poll finds about 40 percent of Massachusetts residents consider the MBTA to be either a worse-than-average public transit system or one of the worst in the country. Fewer than 3 percent consider the T to be one of the best transit systems. And the forecast should be cool and dry this evening. Clear skies tonight, down around 50. Sunshine's back tomorrow with highs back in the 70s. 68 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sarah McCammon. A massive rail strike that threatened major disruptions has been avoided for now. Rail carriers and unions representing thousands of workers have reached a tentative deal, which President Biden celebrated this morning. This agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean this sincerely, a win for America. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg helped negotiate the deal, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. How confident are you, first of all, that union members will ratify this deal? I believe this is a deal that was reached in good faith that the parties came to after uh, very intense conversations and uh, a lot of uh, clear thought into what they needed. So, uh, of course, now it has to go out for ratification, but everybody is invested in that process being successful. And assuming that it is, how soon should we expect to see the trains moving again? 
Well, uh, right away, but there are some impacts that came just even from the preparations for the possibility of a shutdown that started at the beginning of this week. So our Federal Rail Administration is going to continue coordinating with Amtrak and the rail carriers just to make sure that uh, those ripple effects are uh, smooth as they work their way through the system over the next two or three days. Now, workers made clear during these negotiations that they they don't just care about wages, that quality of life is also important. For instance, being able to take time off when they're sick and not face punishment for that. What kind of a message do you think this sends to other employers? Well, this is something we see a lot in particular when it comes to essential transportation workers because of the nature of their work. Similarly with truck drivers, you know, some of the issues that have really impacted the availability of truck drivers are uh, not just things relating to their dollars and cents compensation, but uh, the ability to uh, have uh, places, safe places to park and rest, in their case, uh, even something like access to bathrooms, these basic quality of life issues that stand alongside compensation as a very important matter. That's what you saw here, too, uh, clearly a, a very important issue for the workers uh, in terms of how their sick time was addressed, uh, especially for workers who are on call for long periods of time. Uh, and because the nature of this transportation business often requires very unusual things that, that most nine to five workers don't deal with, I think that will continue to be something that is expressed as a, a real priority for workers in negotiations and the, the public dialogue about what it means to treat essential workers as essential. What do you think it does mean? Well, what it means is that uh, it's important to have competitive pay and uh, a high quality of life. For the unions, it means, uh, of course, uh, uh, pay increases and improvements in quality of life. For the railroads, it means uh, a way to attract and retain uh, great workers who are the key to uh, uh, to making rail operations work. And for the country, it means avoiding the disruptions that uh, could have uh, accompanied any kind of shutdown or uh, uh, or slow down. Now, a rail strike does appear to be averted for the moment, but West Coast dock workers are still in negotiations about their new contract. That, of course, is another key piece of the supply chain. How hopeful are you, Secretary, that those issues can also be resolved? Uh, very hopeful, but also uh, continuing to, to monitor closely. Uh, you know, our, our supply chains are only as strong uh, as our uh, most congested link. And uh, we've seen that uh, throughout the pandemic period and, and, and recovery from the worst days of it, uh, whether it's ships, trucks, warehouses, or trains, uh, all of these things need to be working well in order for our economy to thrive. Yeah, maybe on that note, President Biden said in response to the news of this tentative deal that he's hopeful that similar agreements can be struck in other fields as well. What else might be in the works? Well, when you look at uh, the, the things that are important to transportation workers, it does, of course, vary by sector, but compensation will always be important quality of life matters. And that means different things to a, a, a rail worker than it might mean uh, to a flight attendant or to a longshore worker. But what it all adds up to is making sure that people can uh, build a, a career, support their families, be, uh, be satisfied with their career choices. Uh, and all of that adds up into uh, a functioning supply chain who, you know, no matter how much infrastructure we build, and even today uh, we're announcing 26 places where de we're deploying $1.5 billion. It's just a piece of the puzzle in helping build our physical infrastructure supporting supply chains. But for all of that, at the end of the day, the most important element of our supply chain is people. My last question for you, Secretary Buttigieg, is just does this deal go far enough? I mean, if it's successful, it will make conditions better for for these workers in some ways. But as you've alluded to, we've seen other labor shortages in other pieces 
of the supply chain. Uh, what is the administration doing to push the railroads and other critical industries to just do what needs to be done to attract and retain these workers and avoid these kinds of disruptions in the future? This is exactly what the uh, what falls to the parties to come to agreement on, a, a solution that makes sense for the workers and for the railroads. Uh, again, every industry, every sector is a little bit different, but what they all have in common is it's people make it all possible. And we need to do right by the people who we count on for transportation and, and for goods movement, whether we realize it or not. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Good being with you. The White House is spotlighting the rise in hate-fueled violence at a day-long gathering today. The United We Stand Summit aims to kickstart efforts at the local and federal levels to help communities prevent, respond to, and recover from these kinds of attacks. NPR's Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism, has been monitoring the summit. Hey, Odette. Hey, Juana. So tell us a little more about this summit. What's been happening there and what has it been like? It's been a lot of testimonials. Uh, We heard from victims of hate crimes or their family members, a former neo-Nazi skinhead, uh, federal agency heads and extremism experts, to name a few. Um, Vice President Kamala Harris made remarks near the top with President Biden closing it out. Harris set the tone um, saying that the surge we're seeing in hate crimes and domestic terrorism has brought this country to an inflection point in its democracy. You know, Juana, this has been an interesting thing to watch today. Um, The Biden administration is being careful to frame the issue as one that should unite all democracy-loving Americans, regardless of background or politics. But of course, these efforts by the White House have been poorly received by some on the right, particularly Republicans in Congress who say the administration is demonizing conservatives. And Odette, as you've been listening, have you heard anything that suggests a new way of perhaps thinking about domestic terrorism? Yes, a couple of things. Uh, So for a long time, Juana, the U.S. approach to domestic terrorism was framed solely as a national security issue. Uh, It was a law enforcement matter with a focus on foreign terrorists or attacks that the Department of Homeland Security seemed to think would come from within Americans' Muslim community. And that, of course, led to very problematic civil rights issues. Today, uh, for the first time, we saw an administration preparing to take a much wider view. Uh, So instead of just talking about victims of mass violence or domestic terrorism, we also heard from people who were individually targeted in local hate crimes. Bill Braniff of the University of Maryland told participants why that's important. But if policymakers focus only on one, only on the 70 or so terrorist attacks that occur in a given year and not the 7,000 plus hate crimes, they'll make national security and public safety decisions based on less than 1% of the ideologically motivated crime that occurs in this country. This fails the victims of hate crime in their communities. It minimizes the national security implications of hate. If we're honest, it's not just policymakers. There is roughly one print news story for every 10 hate crimes reported to the FBI. We barely acknowledge them in our national discourse. And Juana, we also heard an interest in things like public civic education and media literacy to help Americans know when they're being targeted by extremist propaganda or misinformation that can lead to violence. And Odette, so far, have there been any kind of concrete promises coming out of this event? Yeah, so for that digital literacy piece, there will be close to $70 million to help states develop programs. The Department of Education is allocating a billion dollars over 10 years to states to help support students who face hate. 
and the Department of Homeland Security is awarding $20 million for prevention efforts. And some of that will go to historically black colleges and universities, which you may know have been recently targeted by bomb threats. But at the end of the day, the idea is that this summit is a kickoff to work that will largely be done at the community level. That's NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef. Thank you. Thank you. Ukrainian ballet dancer Oleksandr Shapoval is being remembered as a courageous romantic. Days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Shapoval volunteered to fight. On Monday, he was killed on the battlefield, according to the National Opera of Ukraine, where he was a principal dancer. He was 48 years old. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. Prima ballerina Christina Shishper met Alexander Shapoval 22 years ago. Speaking from Kyiv, she says their first ballet together was dancing the leads in Swan Lake. It took my heart and took my breath when I danced with him this Swan Lake first time. Shishper and Shapoval went on to dance in many different ballets together. She remembers his versatility. She says he could be tender when the part called for it or fierce. Soon after Russia invaded the country, Shapoval volunteered to fight. Shishper says she wasn't at all surprised by his decision. It was to be expected, and everyone understood that he would give his duty for our country, for our people, for our children. He was always standing on the side of justice. Eventually, Shapoval's unit was sent to a region with heavy fighting, and he was killed. The National Opera of Ukraine issued a statement that said his death was received with indescribable sadness. He was a reliable partner, a reliable friend, sincere human being, and I must say that he was the soul of the team. The soul of the team. Alexander Shapoval is survived by his wife and a 21-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a closer look at a controversial experiment in Canada that aims to keep drug users alive by helping them get high more safely. That story is still ahead. Losses across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a half percent, 173 points, to close at 30,962. S&P fell more than one and a tenth percent to close at 3,901. The Nasdaq gave up almost one and a half percent to close at 11,552. Massachusetts casinos made a total of roughly 92 million dollars from gambling last month. That's according to numbers from the Gaming Commission. The state's two resort casinos and include MGM Springfield and Encore Boston Harbor. They tax, they're taxed at 25% of gross revenue. The smaller Plain Ridge Park Casino in Plainville is taxed at 49%. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, now featuring Hunter Douglas shades for light and glare control in hard-to-reach windows. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo, Route 9 Natick and Innuendo.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. 
Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBR mobile app when you're out for a run or running errands. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, sunny again tomorrow. Tonight's low is about 51, tomorrow's high is about 73 degrees. Sunny and mainly dry for at least the start of the weekend. Look for highs in the 70s on Saturday, the mid-80s on Sunday. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Juana Summers. Record numbers of people in the U.S. are dying from drug overdoses, more than 100,000 deaths a year. And now public health experts here are watching a controversial experiment underway in Canada. It aims to keep drug users alive, not by curing their addiction, but by helping them get high more safely. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Anne-Marie Hopkins takes me down a street in Ottawa, Canada's capital, where dozens of people lie on the sidewalk. Um, We do have quite a lot of overdoses out here. Hi, honey, how are you? Hi, honey. Hopkins runs a program here for people with addiction. These days that means scrambling all the time just to keep patients alive. Um, We've got porta potties that we have to check for bodies. Addiction has changed. It used to be a chronic illness, something most people struggled with before eventually recovering. Now, street drugs in the U.S. and here in Canada are far more deadly, laced with powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl and other toxic chemicals. So Hopkins says her philosophy of addiction care also had to change. She sums it up in a single sentence. There is no recovery if you're dead. So here in Ottawa and other cities across Canada, addiction workers are partnering with doctors, nurses, and pharmacists to create addiction programs to help people even when they're not yet willing to give up the drugs that get them high. Pardon me. Oh, okay. Hey there. Hopkins takes me inside her clinic, where half a dozen people are sitting in little booths. They look sort of like the study desks you'd see in a library. They're shooting up, injecting heroin and methamphetamines purchased from street dealers. Hopkins says these people can get in trouble fast, so her team watches every user on a closed-circuit TV screen. He's taking a look right now. He's watching somebody inject. If he were to see, like, say, for example, this gentleman not doing well, he would yell out to the staff on the floor, hey, go check eight, make sure they're okay. It's troubling to watch. Overdoses happen here all the time, just like they do out on the street. But in this clinic and similar clinics across Canada, nurses stand by ready to help. During my visit, a woman slumps forward in her chair. The individual in that booth is under like a very mild overdose. Um, We're just going to pop her on just a little bit of oxygen, probably a very low level, just to make sure that she doesn't dip down further. Some forms of harm reduction have been around for years in the U.S. and Canada. More communities are distributing naloxone. It's a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. They're handing out clean needles to help people with addiction avoid diseases like HIV and hepatitis. The harm reduction experiment here in Ottawa is more radical, more controversial. In most of the U.S., this kind of care would be illegal. But the people who come here to use drugs say it's a lifeline. The staff here are very special people to, to, to come and be here with us, for us. Shelly, who doesn't want to share her last name, just finished injecting opioids in one of the booths. She says using drugs outside on the streets is frightening. She tells me about a recent overdose that happened in a place with no medical care, no safety net. I was thrown in the bathtub of cold water, and when I woke, came to, uh, my friends were in smoking crack. <laughs> and, um, I could have probably just died in that bathtub. 
I see it every day. I see overdoses, and I have many, many friends have lost their lives. I want to pause here and acknowledge this may sound a little crazy. If people experience this much danger using drugs, why don't they just stop? Why not get the kind of addiction treatment aimed at full recovery? But studies show tens of millions of people in the U.S. and Canada who use illegal drugs either can't quit or aren't yet willing to try. So the question is, how can the healthcare system help people who are still using these high-risk drugs? Hi, I'm Max. I meet Max at another Ottawa clinic a half-hour drive away. He's sitting with a fantasy novel, waiting for a session with one of his caseworkers. I used to be a complete mess before I got on this program. He's 26 years old and tells me he's used methamphetamines since he was 12. I used to be a very heavy meth user. I, I used to inject a gram of meth in a shot every day, three times a day. So Max now comes to the pharmacy in this clinic every week for another form of experimental harm reduction not available in the U.S. It's called safer supply. With a doctor's prescription, he gets enough Ritalin that he can inject it to get the high he craves without buying high-risk meth on the street. He joined the program after an overdose nearly killed him. I spent three months in the ICU, and that's when I got on safe supplies when I came out of the ICU, and it, it, basically I'm pretty sure it saved my life. So that's the big win. Max is still alive. He says he's also using smaller doses of drugs, trying to taper his addiction. And while he's here, he gets other kinds of medical care. And he's working with a social worker to find permanent housing. Now, here's why addiction experts in the U.S. are paying attention to what's happening in Canada. The U.S. is seeing an even bigger surge of drug overdoses. And public health officials are embracing this idea that helping people with addiction survive has to be a first step. Dr. Brian Hurley is with ASAM, the top organization in the U.S. pushing for better addiction care. There is a tremendous number of Americans at risk for overdose that are not going to go into treatment, or at least they're not going to go into treatment right now. And if we say, well, wait until they're ready, they might be dead. ASAM hasn't taken a position on doctors prescribing drugs to people who use the medications to get high. Hurley says they need more data first, more research. But ASAM supports the idea of supervised drug use clinics, like the ones in Canada, opening across the U.S. I think that we should see more communities start and test safer consumption sites, see what works and what doesn't, and make modifications in order to bring these to scale. It's common for Americans to romanticize healthcare in Canada, so a note of caution is important here. People working in Ottawa's harm reduction network don't claim their programs offer anything like a quick, easy solution. Yes, services and health care for people using drugs have gotten better, but street drugs also keep getting more powerful, more toxic. Anne-Marie Hopkins says even with their best efforts, a lot of people are still dying. It's completely exhausting for the team. We have a very high rate of burnout. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely very emotionally taxing on the staff. But Hopkins is convinced that with more clinics like hers and better public health care for people still actively using drugs, a lot more lives could be saved, both in Canada and in the U.S. And NPR's Brian Mann is here with me now. And Brian, a lot of these approaches that you've been reporting on, well, they're quite controversial. Could we see them perhaps tried here in the United States? You know, Juana, a couple of years ago, I would have said no. You know, there are still big ethical debates, even within the addiction and healthcare communities, over some of these approaches. 
But these drug deaths just keep rising astronomically. The medical journal The Lancet has predicted that another 1.2 million Americans will die from overdoses by the end of this decade. So we're seeing more public health responses that once seemed impossible. They're now on the table. And at one of the clinics you visited, there were people who were injecting street drugs under medical supervision. Is there anything like that now here in the U.S.? Yeah, we've seen two supervised injection clinics open in New York City last year. Uh, People in other states are considering similar pilot programs. A big question now is what position the Justice Department will take on this kind of harm reduction. Right now, what's happening in Canada would be illegal under U.S. law, but the DOJ is doing a policy review right now. If they allow safe injection sites to open, that would be a game changer. NPR's Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. So nice out there this evening. Clear skies tonight. Overnight lows about 50 degrees. And then September sunshine again for the next few days. Should be breezy and coolish tomorrow with temperatures in the mid-70s. Sunny on Saturday in the low 70s. Sunny on Sunday, maybe an afternoon shower with temperatures creeping to the mid-80s. 66 degrees now in the Boston area at 630. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, with local produce and groceries, now picking homegrown sweet corn, tomatoes, peppers, and more. VolanteFarms.com slash now picking.